Good morning and uh, welcome to this uh, Institute for Government live event, uh, which is part of our virtual Labour Party uh, fringe. I'm Alex Thomas. I'm uh, a programme director at the IFG. And we're talking this morning about uh, a new relationship between government and uh, citizens, and uh, we're delighted to be supported for that conversation by PA Consulting. Uh, with the coronavirus crisis, the way we work and live has changed. I'm sitting here at home. Uh, I'm sure many of you will be uh, too. Um, we've also seen government intervene in people's lives like in an extraordinary way. And there's a lively debate happening uh, just this morning about the next phase of that uh, and how the government should go about it. Throughout the crisis, we've seen uh, some examples of uh, good communication between government and uh, citizens. Uh, we've also seen some examples of pretty poor communication. So what's all this going to do to the relationship between citizens and uh, the government? Uh, how long will those changes last? Uh, and I'm delighted that we've got a fantastic panel to uh, talk about those sorts of questions uh, here this morning. Before I introduce them, though, this is my first exhortation for you to send your questions in. Use the use the Q&A function on uh, uh, the, this platform and uh, we will come to many of your questions in the second half of this uh, event. So, as I said, brilliant panel. Um, Helen Hayes has been the MP for Dulwich and West Norwood since uh, 2015 and she's Shadow Minister for the Cabinet Office, uh, also uh, practised as an architect. Um, Arik Chowdhury is the founder and director of Webroots Democracy. Um, he's worked in government, uh, in the private sector, for parliament, uh, and uh, uh, is an expert on the relationship um, between uh, the internet and democracy. Miriam Levin is a programme director at Engage Britain. Uh, she's working uh, with people across the country to find ways to tackle the challenges that the country um, faces and uh, has uh, had a long career in uh, community action and community engagement. And Conrad Thompson is a director at PA Consulting, uh, uh, who joined PA in 2001 uh, after a, a career in uh, the private sector specialising in business innovation. So fantastic panel to talk about uh, this subject today. Uh, I'm going to uh, kick off by uh, asking uh, Conrad what uh, he thinks about um, uh, what, what the government needs to do to shape itself to implement uh, what citizens want. Conrad. Thank you very much, Alex, and good morning, everyone. Um, so as you say, Alex, today I'm going to talk a little bit about what government can do to better deliver against citizen needs, and in particular, the role trust plays in achieving that. I'll be candid from the outset. This isn't rocket science. Many of us know instinctively what needs to be done, and yet we find ourselves in a position where government, more than any other institution, is seen as the least fair institution according to the Elderman Trust Barometer, neither competent nor ethical, and where, according to a recent Ipsos Murray poll, less than half of Britons trust government to provide correct information during the pandemic. Yet trust is vital to effective government. Contact tracing, the rule of six, reporting rule-breaking neighbours rely on people abiding by government guidance. Our recovery as a nation will hinge on trust. I often think of trust as a balloon. It's slowly built up over time, but one moment of negligence or misfortune can see it instantly pop. At the outset of lockdown, people looked to government as a galvanising force. 27.5 million people watched our Prime Minister's 10th May address to the nation, making it one of the most watched in history. Much of government's early action, the speed at which ventilator capacity was met, rapid expansion of critical care, Nightingale hospitals, and the devolution of power to local authorities did much to earn trust. However, others will say the pandemic response was bungled from the outset. Cite the latest of lockdown, overly ambitious testing announcements, and vulnerability of care homes for starters. And since then, government has overseen a string of public U-turns and muddles. Think of the A-level fiasco, contravention of international law, and that's not to mention Barnard Castle. This is not to be unnecessarily critical. Much like any bookshelf on a video call, a government is there to be judged. And trust will be vital as this and future governments attempt to deliver against rising citizens' expectations, the need to restore, not just stabilise the economy, 
address regional equalities, navigate the Brexit process, re-establish the UK as a sovereign economic power and reach net zero by 2050. So that's a really ambitious, some may say audacious agenda. So how can government level up without trust bottoming out? Well, we believe governments focus on four actions. Firstly, it needs to shape markets, not just fix them. So government should use its renewed influence to shape markets that better serve us all. Regulators are a great example. Their role must continue shifting from enforcers to enablers. For example, the Civil Aviation Authority has proactively supported innovation around drones, engaging with the market to shape new workable solutions. Rather than acting as an end of process rubber stamper, they've pivoted, become co-collaborators in new developments. This benefits the wider economy and wins trust across industry and society. Number two, government needs to use innovation as a means to reduce the deficit. Uh, I'm sure Arik will cover this more eloquently than me in terms of how technology can be a powerful enabler for innovation. But this doesn't always mean using the latest technology. There is much that can be done by seeing things through a new lens. For example, when the US Navy, the largest in the world, wanted to extend the lifespan of its submarines, they coordinated policy, design and maintenance changes in an integrated way that increased their deployment rate. This same thinking could be deployed across a raft of citizen-centered services, delivering better outcomes for all at lower cost. Number three, keep citizens at the heart of everything. Government has long spoken, as we know, of being citizen-centered, while simultaneously recoiling from mentioning the word customer. Often customer is used as a transactional term, rather than applying to anyone who gains benefit from a service. So I'm sure most of us have some kind of subscription service. For example, Netflix kept a lot of us sane through lockdown. But what are citizens if not subscribers to the state? We need to ask what government could learn from subscription services like Netflix or Spotify. For example, in the way they continually test out new services and rapidly take on board feedback. And lastly, we need to tackle the challenges with adaptiveness and ingenuity. Localised agile responses will best serve citizens in this uncertain future. This calls for a move from large multi-year programmes to adaptive approaches where organisations can flex in line with shifting public demands. For the UK ventilator challenge, the public and private sector came together to manufacture and distribute ventilators at an unprecedented pace and scale, delivering in weeks what would typically have taken years and ensuring every patient who needed a ventilator received one. What stands out most for me here is the incredible appetite across the UK to assist. Over 5,000 offers of help were received and more than 200 ventilator designs were submitted. By seizing this new imperative, the UK can preserve the best parts of our existing system whilst finding new imaginative ways to ensure the delicate thread of trust between government and its citizens, not just remains, but becomes a fabric of a reformed, reimagined society that better serves us all. Thank you, Alex, back to you. Thanks, comrade. So Helen, and uh, uh, I owe you a, uh, an apology for uh, describing you as an architect and you were a, a town planner, so apologies about, about that. Um, uh, we heard from Conrad there about um, uh, the need to put citizens at the heart of uh, uh, everything and uh, uh, also some uh, ways in which uh, uh, sort of through this extraordinary period government uh, had changed. Um, clearly government has been much more interventionist over the last six months, it's had to be. Do you think that's going to sustain? Do you think that's going to last? Helen. Thanks very much, Alex. So I think it's helpful to think about government intervention during the pandemic in, in two broad categories. So there is a type of intervention in people's lives that we're seeing at the moment that is very restrictive and in, in some to, to some extent intrusive. And there is also a type of intervention which is about providing support at very, very rapidly and at a very broad scale to people to, to address um, the emergency that the country finds itself in. On the, the first category of those more intrusive interventions, 
conditions. La Labour's very clear that we, while we support the Coronavirus Act and we voted for it as a, a necessary package of measures commensurate with and, and proportionate to dealing with a pandemic, we don't support the government hanging on to those powers as a one-way street indefinitely. And that's why we argued for and were pleased to secure a six-month review of the powers in the Act so that there is an opportunity for parliamentary scrutiny of the extent to which those intrusive powers are really necessary for the, 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 the longer term. Um, on the second type of, of support and intervention, um, this you know, very, very large scale public expenditure that we are seeing now to deliver multiple different types of support of support for people. Um, I, I think what it's important to reflect on is that this um, uh, this moment around the pandemic comes after a decade of austerity when we have seen the government retreating from the support that it's able to offer across many areas of public services for the last 10 years. Uh, and I think this is a moment now where for all of the terrible pain and hardship uh, of the coronavirus pandemic, the government should be able to, to, to be, as Conrad says, re-establishing um, that contract of trust with the British people through the provision of support. Um, trust is the bedrock of the relationship between government and its citizens. Um, and uh, people need to be able to trust government that it means what it says and that it will deliver on what it promises. Um, but we have seen that trust being broken in multiple different ways throughout the pandemic as well. And that's really problematic. So we have seen straightforward incompetence across um, some areas of delivery, most notably test and trace and the A-level fiasco. We have seen a lack of transparency and straightforwardness with people. Uh, we have seen the handing out of contracts with no tender process to companies without proper um, accountability, sometimes with connections to government ministers. And then we've seen those same companies often not able to deliver the services that people need. And we've also seen the way that COVID has exposed the fault lines of the last 10 years of austerity. I would say particularly in the area of social care, an area of public service which already had a quantifiably underfunded um, uh, underfunding um, and where people uh, within across that sector have been struggling to cope with no long-term sustainable funding strategy or plan from the government. And then that same sector was seemingly forgotten about at the start of, pandemic, of the pandemic and paid a terrible, terrible price in terms of deaths of residents and staff. Um, we have seen that sector being lied to by the government um, with Matt Hancock's protective ring, which you know anybody in the sector would, would tell you simply didn't exist at, at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so I think what moving on, it's really important at this point that the government seizes this moment to engage meaningfully fully um, with sectors like social care and with the wider wider public in, on social care in particular many 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 more people across the country are aware of the problems now as a consequence of the pandemic and that opportunity for a conversation with people about how do we provide a, a, a social care system going forward which can deliver that the dignity and the quality of care that any of us would expect for any of our loved, one, loved ones into the future. The, the opportunity is open to the government to take it at this point in time. But we think in the Labour Party that the government should be applying much longer term thinking on resilience and recovery, being really honest with citizens about the scars and weaknesses that coronavirus has exposed, which have been left by the last decade of austerity. Um, areas like rough sleeping, um, which has gone up by 141%, um, the, the, the million people who are working on zero hours contracts, the, the many, many people across the country who don't have sufficient savings to ride them through the kind of knock that they have experienced as a consequence of coronavirus. Um, and uh, the, the, the desperate shortage of high quality, genuinely affordable social housing. We have all spent so much more time in our neighbourhoods and in our homes. The, the weaknesses and the challenges for people who don't have access to housing have also been exposed. So at this point, I think the government should be accepting the urgency of the need for a more resilient society with much more security for people within their families, within their neighbourhoods and localities and um, within their uh, 
across the country as a whole in areas like civil contingency planning and social care. Um, and it should be really committing to engage with communities uh, 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 to work through the detail of a plan to build resilience at those three different spatial scales. Um, I think that's the key to making sure that moving forward, we have the right kind of government intervention, which really provides the support that people need. Thanks, Helen. Trust, a really big theme coming through that um, sort of effectiveness of service delivery and resilience. Uh, we're going to come back to a number of those uh, themes. Um, we're already also already starting to get questions through. Do um, do feed your questions uh, in and I will put as many of them as I can to the panel. Uh, we'll we'll come back to trust, we'll come back to uh, lots of the things that Comrade and Helen were talking about, but I want to pick up another uh, theme of this about um, technology and, and uh, the technological change that we've seen. Uh, Arik, uh, the changes have been extraordinary. Do you think they'll be sustained? Do you think they'll speed up? Is this a real kind of tipping point moment? Thanks Alex and thanks for um, inviting me to this event. It's a really interesting uh, panel and a really important topic. So will we have a new relationship between government and citizens? Uh, I hope so. I'm going to, going to focus particularly on one area where I think we should uh, aspire to see a new relationship, and that's with um, citizens with disabilities, who I think have been often left out of this conversation. And I want to share with you a quick story from an event I spoke at last week with the Royal Society for Blind Children, which is a charity in London um, that is very, their youth forum is doing a lot of work on democracy and this question of uh, how they can use technology to help them. And before the pandemic, we had this issue where uh, people with vision impairments and severe disabilities uh, don't really have access to uh, an independent secret ballot, which is the, the bedrock of our democracy and, and of all democracies around the world. Um, the reason for that bit of background, if you're blind or you're, you have a housebound disability, um, your, the provision for you to vote is a postal vote by default. That's the only real way you can vote. And, uh, and in doing so, you have to rely on someone else to cast that vote on your behalf. Uh, if you're able to make it to the polling station and you have a severe vision impairment, you use a Braille template over your ballot paper, uh, but only 1% of vision impaired adults can read Braille now. So for a number of years, uh, you know, lots of people in our society have been calling for modernization in our democracy, just so that they can have that basic rights of voting, right? So again, yeah, this is really, when we think about how we can use technology, if you think of the most important need is really this issue, right? This kind of civil rights issue, giving people the votes. And, you know, go back a hundred years, um, we had elections, but women couldn't vote. That wasn't a full democracy. A few years uh, beyond that, some women were able to vote, but only those with wealth. That wasn't a full democracy. And if you look now, there are lots of people still left behind, and we don't really have a full democracy. And next year, we'll, we'll have more elections, right? We're going to have the London mayoral election. We're going to have local council elections. Seemingly, there, was, there are no announcements that I've, I've seen anyway about how we're going to modernise uh, those elections. And when these campaigners, uh, you know, people with vision impairments, disabilities, have been calling for at least 10 years now for the, the option to vote online, um, they've been met with calls that it's not, it's not possible, it's not practical, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's no money for it, that, those sorts of answers. And what the pandemic has revealed is that actually, if we really want to, we can move everything online, right? Or as much as possible, things are impossible, uh, thought impossible before. Take Parliament, for example, right? They've adopted virtual Parliament um, methods, even at one point remote voting. And this is the, one of the most rickety, antiquated uh, and traditional institutions in the country were able to modernise. And so when thinking ahead about a new relationship, that's really where we have to begin with, right? People who are already left behind before the lesson of the pandemic should be that actually we can make everything accessible for people, whether that's, you know, elections, remote working, flexible working, all of these different things, remote interviews, um, you know, those are the, that's the beginning point of, that's where we should begin when assessing a new relationship beyond COVID. And I'd be very interested also to know what the Labour Party's position is on those issues, particularly the, um, the voting uh, issue, which again, as I said, undermines our status as a full democracy. 
And there was a really good tweet that I'm just going to read out, which I think sums up this issue quite well. Um, I said, disabled people really won't forget that we were always told that what we were always told was too expensive, inconvenient, or simply impossible to make our lives more accessible was done for able-bodied people as soon as the pandemic hit, because it was always possible. They just didn't want to. So I'm hoping that the message today should be, if you want to imagine this new relationship, don't just think about the, the people who already have access, right? So all of us, we all work in offices anyway. It's not really that big a deal that we're doing things online. There are other people who are already left behind before COVID. And what this should be is a reality check for us, a wake up call that actually there are different means we can do. And technology has so much potential um, to bring in those marginalized voices. And that's the first, very first step we should do. So I'd be interested to know what other panelists views are on this and especially Helen's. Uh, so I'd like to see Labour Party put forward some policies on this. Brilliant, thank you. Really, um, sort of a really powerful challenge about accessibility as well. So I mean, another theme that we can uh, come back to. I mean, and and, and they, you you give us a, a, a really strong sense of how they kind of together trust and accessibility and um, uh, uh, competence and, and and all of this sort of comes together in a in a mix. I will come back to particularly conscious. Helen uh, is a um, shadow cabinet office minister, and the cabinet office are uh, responsible for elections and um, uh, democracy. Uh, uh, so I will come back to Helen on that in a, in a minute. But first, uh, I'm going to bring uh, Miriam uh, Levin in uh, to pick up on a number of these uh, themes and I'm sure you'll talk about um, trust and accessibility as, as well. But what, what do you think citizens will want from the government after the pandemic? Thank you, Alex. What do I think citizens will want from the government? I think we want to be treated like adults. I think we want to be trusted. And I think we want to be involved in a much more proactive way with the decisions that affect our lives. I mean, as um, all the other panellists have said, because of the pandemic, the government has put forth a huge number of dictates about what we can and can't do, who we meet, who, where we shop, how we shop, what we do. The sort of um, uh, legislating and regulating our lives in a way that we have never had before, not been used to at all. And that's completely understandable. Right? I get that. In a pandemic, that is what's going to happen. And that's fine, except for it to work really well. We have to have a contract between citizens and the state, which is built on trust. And that comes back to something Conrad was saying at the beginning. It's all about trust. If you, the government, tell me what to do, I want to trust that you are going to be making decisions based on sound evidence and what's best for the people of the country. And that, that's when it works, except we're in a situation right now where the implicit trust between state and the citizens has been eroded. And post-pandemic, I think what we've got is a real opportunity to do something about that, to build it back up. Problem is, where we started from before COVID wasn't a really great place, even before COVID struck. Levels, in, levels of trust in government was at an all-time low. So, so many people across the country were feeling disempowered, disenfranchised, disengaged from politics, feeling like it wouldn't make any difference to them at all if they got involved in it. There was a really interesting survey done last year in 2019 by the Hansard Society, their audit of political engagement. And that showed that the percentage of people who felt most powerless had jumped by six points to 18%. So 18% of the population feel like they have no power. Nothing they do makes any difference at all. It's all being dictated to them from somewhere else, some other seat of power. That's that 18% figure, that was the highest in the 16 years the audit had been doing that. Sorry, the Hansard Society had been doing their audit. And at the same time, the number of people who strongly disagree that getting involved in politics can make a difference to the way the UK has run hit an all-time high as well. And it's just, if we're starting from that position, we've got a long way to go. And the way that the pandemic has been handled hasn't helped that. So what do we do next? What do we do to make all this better? So if we think about the way that the government makes its decisions and makes policy, we do have an opportunity to do it in a completely different way, in a much better way, in a much more um, inclusive way that does involve citizens in the way that um, these decisions are made and really puts them at the heart of policy making. So I think as citizens, what I would want, and I as a citizen would want, is I, I want policy making stuff from what really matters to people. What are, the, what are the issues really at the heart? What do people really care about? We also have to take policy making out of the Whitehall bubble. I, mean, I used to work in government until just earlier on this year. So 
I'm very aware of how policy is made in government, and there is a way of doing it differently, which puts experts by profession and experts by lived experience right at the centre of policy development. And I think you also have to open up a space for real discussion and deliberation with ordinary citizens, with different perspectives, with different knowledge, with different ideas and experiences to really bring that into how we tackle these really massive intractable policy questions. Bring them together so you can really think about, think through kind of ways forward and the trade-offs that you have to make when you're making these incredibly difficult political decisions. I think often the way things are done is that citizens aren't trusted to be able to make those decisions and to think this through. But actually, if you use um, approaches like deliberative and co-design approaches, things like citizens' assemblies, that really does allow politicians and policymakers to listen to the very considered views of diverse citizens and bring in those experts and frontline practitioners and staff, the people who are actually responsible for implementing that policy and putting it into practice on a day-to-day -day basis, bring them into finding the solutions to kind of finding ways forward. And I think it's really important to say here, that's not the same as decision-making by focus group. It's quite a different process. It's not about hearing what people already think, but about informed discussion on, on really important policy matters with people that don't usually meet each other, who don't normally come together, who don't kind of hear from each other from very, very different political and other standpoints. And enable them to kind of create that better understanding of what trade-offs are inherent in any given decision. What we do know is that deliberative approaches, things like citizens' assemblies, they, they've shown, we've done it. We've done it in this country, they've been run all over the world for quite a long time, really dealing with incredibly difficult, often considered to be impossible to solve political questions. And what we know is that when you bring people together, they've shown time and time again, that when you bring people together, together with the time and the space to deliberate, that those people, those ordinary citizens, you and me, like people really listen, really listen to all sides of the debate and they leave their personal baggage and ideology kind of behind. And you start thinking about the common good, what's actually going to work for most of the people most of the time. And it is possible to find that consensus on the best way forward. It's not a perfect answer, because there, there aren't perfect answers to these incredibly difficult questions. But sensible and useful recommendations and ways forward that can actually be developed and delivered and implemented. So coming back to your original question, I'd argue that in the current climate, we the people, we need more of that. We need more opportunities to be part of these decision making processes and to be treated like adults, brought into the room and being part of the ways of finding ways forward on these big challenges. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, Miriam. Uh, Helen, I'm going to come to you now and uh, uh, sort of two, two parts to the question. The first is on um, Eric's kind of challenge about um, accessibility of uh, democracy uh, and um, uh, elections in, in particular. Um, and then the, the second part, just picking up on what Miriam said, and we've also had questions. There's a question from Pamela Buchan and a question from Graham Allen picking up on these questions about uh, participatory and deliberative democracy. Um, the the, the um, uh, question on that is how do you how do you make that real in the political process? How, how do you stop it being a sort of flight of fancy uh, off in a room? How does it become grounded in actual day to day kind of um, uh, cynical politics, if I can put it that way? So on Arik's question, we have got um, a, a reasonably long standing commitment now, at least in the last three elections, to a constitutional convention looking at all aspects of our democracy. And, and it's, it, it, it's absolutely the case that as part of that, we should be looking at and capturing the um, opportunities that are presented by technology to make our democracy more inclusive and more accessible to a range of people to participate. We are, are one of the many threats to our democracy at the moment is a lack of engagement and participation and those issues are really important. Um, but I don't think that, that we solve the problem of trust with any single measure um, in, in that way. Uh, and in fact, coronavirus has exposed a, a different set of inequalities um, and and, and, and problems, particularly around technology. So with the, as the mother of two secondary age children, um, I've seen the immense disparity in lack of access to um, the internet and to decent computing equipment um, in, in terms of my children's peers and, and their ability to learn during the pandemic. Um, and so, and, and then alongside that, we have a government that is persisting with some very, very damaging approaches 
to voter suppression, in terms of requirements for voter ID, in terms of changes to, to voter registration. And, and as we're seeing at the moment going through Parliament, the Boundaries Bill, which removes parliamentary scrutiny from the work of the, the, the Boundary Commission um, in, in, in the final stages. Um, so, so I think that point about we, we you know, we, we should be bringing our democracy up to date for a technological age, um, but we need to be having the much broader conversation about trust and participation and inclusivity. And you know, people didn't trust quite rightly the A-level algorithm because it was a disaster. Um, people don't always trust um, other forms of, of government intervention through technology in their lives. So that's a problem that we need to solve in order to open up those technologies to be really fully used in, in order to, to, to um, on, on that challenge around inclusivity and participation, which we really need. Um, on the second part, the question around um, deliberative democracy and citizens um, assemblies and so on. I mean, on the basis of what I've seen firsthand, and um, I, I really strongly support that approach as a, as a much more mainstream part of um, the way that government engages with citizens and takes decisions. So I was on in the last parliament, the Housing Communities Local Government Select Committee, um, and we undertook a citizens assembly type process to look at long term funding of adult social care. And it was a fantastic process that really um, showed that it is possible, uh, you know, a, a, a group of um, demographically representative well-informed citizens um, can really engage with some of the toughest challenges of long-term government decision making uh, and build a consensus between them and that was an enormously valuable piece of work um, and the same is true of the the the, the, um, uh, the climate assembly which was recently recently just concluded and, and the findings of that were launched it is really important that those processes have a a proper grounding in the actual decision-making process of whether that's at a local or a national level. So I think it's the case that we shouldn't be taking decision by Citizens' Assembly, that they should be informative processes that then feed into the, the formal democrat democratic processes. But it is important that there is a bond of trust, that if we are asking people to give up large periods of their spare time to take part in, in such processes and to reach, to, to grapple really in a really serious way with issues and to reach conclusions, then those conclusions have to go somewhere. And, and um, that, that you know, the, there is no point in launching lots of deliberative decision making if it then results in lots of reports that simply sit on sit on the shelf. So I'm, I'm, I think it has a very, very valuable role to play, um, but it has to be part of that process of rebuilding trust. And that means having a kind of rootedness around where those deliberations um, end up and what happens to them. That's the key, isn't it? It's credibility. And um, uh, you mentioned social care. And uh, so you can have as many sort of uh, solutions that might that might uh, that might work, but if they don't go anywhere, it will it will end up undermining the process. I mean, Arik, what's your what's your take on the kind of deliberative democracy, particularly with your technology expertise, but also more generally? Yeah, I'm a big supporter of um, citizens' conventions. Me and Miriam actually both involved in um, the citizens' convention on UK democracy, which I highly recommend googling. They have a, a good manual for how to run these um, uh, in practice, and we saw the climate assembly which was also done uh, online which I think is a good um, case study of how to do those things uh, remotely. Um, I was also pleased to see uh, Helen commit, committing to do to run a citizens convention as well. Uh, just two quick points on the, the exams algorithm. Um, one of my worries with the exams algorithm issue is that it, it was framed in a way that undermines technology and really that, that algorithm did exactly what it was told to do. It worked uh, and perfectly that the issue there was the actual decision to automate uh, students exam grade which was unfair no matter how the algorithm was uh, decided because it uses things like mock exams, postcodes, things that are kind of irrelevant to a student's uh, ability. Um, and on the on the question of like needing a citizens convention before adopting something like online voting I would I would challenge. Uh, I mean even the Labour Party one of the first Things that happened in the coronavirus crisis was Keir Starmer's election, right, which was almost 100% of voters uh, participated online for that for that election. So there there are there are things I think we can do much sooner. Um, and you know, just again, one of the the young people who spoke at this event last week, she is a, a law student, uh, visually vision impaired, and she just said she doesn't bother to vote because uh, you know she can't physically do so. 
she doesn't she doesn't know whether someone's going to write in the the correct vote or not. It doesn't really feel like she is participating herself. And that's such an immediate issue. And there have been you know, lots of reviews and consultations over you know a decade now. And some of these answers are going to have to be uh, thought of quickly because, like I said, we have the elections coming up next year. We can't just keep delaying the London mayoral election or the, the council elections, etc. So we need to come up with answers now. And let, let's assume in 2021 we have another lockdown and it's quite a severe situation. What is the answer when it comes to the, those things? So that, there are some things I think we need to start thinking about uh, much sooner. But broadly on uh, the Citizens Convention point, I, I do agree that it's a, it's a much needed step. I think Miriam can speak a lot more informatively on this as well. Thanks, uh, Arik. What, what a specific question is coming from Emma Stone that's directed it at, at you, Arik. Um, uh, just while we're talking about the sort of the theme of uh, access, disability um, uh, access, she, she asks about wider uh, digital uh, equalities and um, uh, the lack of access for people to um, uh, be able to um, use the internet um, uh, either because of their own situation or, um, uh, or or for another reason. What? How do you think digital inequalities play into this? Yeah, so I actually used to work um, at DCMS a few years ago on the uh, government's superfast broadband rollout. And there are, you know, it will surprise people, there are some people in the country who don't have telephone lines, right? Never mind internet access. So it is already a huge uh, issue in terms of getting people online and connecting people. And we should never, like, every time I talk about using the internet, it's always as an alternative to other measures. It should never replace um, physical in person options and you know currently yeah there are lots of people who are left behind and a lot of things I think could have been addressed uh, early on in the uh, process of early on in the crisis so take the exams example again right so the government was faced with two options really at the beginning which was to a cancel exams and try this this weird automated uh, prediction process or they could have said okay this is the situation in six months let's move everything remote Let's do everything with remote learning. Uh, who are the people who are going to be left out? Uh, give them, uh, you know, internet access. Give them vouchers. Give them incentives. Give them devices. Would have been expensive, but we've already spent billions already in this uh, coronavirus crisis. So I don't think it'd be too much. And then let people set those exams based on their own abilities, because you know you still have people left behind. You still have people missing chunks of their education, and that's you know a political choice. And that's something going forward we should perhaps think about. So if we're in this situation for years. Um, you know, there's clear benefits to internet access. We're all demonstrating that right now. Uh, have we thought about schemes in which we can get people online? Take the contact tracing app going to be released on Thursday. Uh, many people don't have a smartphone. I think it's one fifth of uh, people over 65, I think, don't have a smartphone. Um, you know, it won't work on older devices. Uh, you know, there's even people who have smartphones that necessarily have the digital literacy required to be able to use them effectively. And this this digital inequality could also undermine our recovery as a result because people won't be using it accurately. Not enough people will be using it. Don't forget we need 80% of smartphone users to be using that contact tracing app for it to be uh, effective. Um, so you know, there, there are lots of questions still hanging in the air where I think we should be uh, going forward and thinking, okay, we want to get everyone online where possible and if they are already online that have the skills and want to upskill them because this could be this could be lasting for years or the ongoing effects so for example moving to online retail or uh, the, the decimation of uh, offline industries will affect people's job prospects as well and therefore we will need to upskill people and get them online so i think that's that should be a top priority for the government Thanks, Rudy. Um I was struck the other day, finally, QR codes have come into their own, having been a slightly sort of old technology and now they're everywhere. Um, I'm going to uh, talk to Conrad and Miriam and then uh, 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 and then Helen Arik about local government, because there's a number of questions, rightly, reminders that you can get very focused on central government um, uh, here, but um, uh, but uh, local government has a huge part to play in terms of the engagement between citizens uh, and the state. Um, so uh, uh, William uh, Wallace asks about that in the context of communication. Um, so this government's used um, uh, unmediated press conferences by the Prime Minister and, and, and Ministers, and we're seeing more of that uh, today. Um, uh, has local government been underplayed? 
uh, and uh, should that uh, local um, uh, representatives have been, been more more informed. And um, Peter, uh, uh, anonymous Peter, um, uh, asks about what the panelists think the Labour Party and its uh, elected representatives can do to shape the ideas discussed today locally in areas they're in power as well as centrally in the opposition. I mean, Helen will definitely have views on that. But but Conrad, can we hear from you about your the role of local government from your perspective? Yeah, I think um, just as an example that I, I, I we were actually involved in, there's a number of local governments that really struggled at the peak of the pandemic to reach out to uh, to their vulnerable people and in, in particular shielding people. Uh, so we had local councils with backlogs of six, eight, ten thousand people that they just weren't reaching out to in testing. Uh, so really quickly coming back to this idea of using technology, being innovation innovative, uh, we we worked with them to set up a, an automated callback service. So it wasn't the internet; it was phone, which often you know more elderly people are more comfortable with. Uh, and within a number of days these huge backlogs were reduced by just setting up a very simple automated callback service, rang the individual, said, hi, this is your local council. Are you feeling safe? Are you feeling vulnerable? Do you have the services you need? Very simple, basic technology, which allowed them to contact 300 people in this one particular case that they just wouldn't have reached out to. So I think there for me is an example where, you know, you both address accessibility and um, use technology as a way of achieving something at far lower cost uh, than would otherwise have been done by having people in a call centre. So I think there are lots of examples. You've just got to start with a different mindset that this is possible. We are going to do this. You know, internet access for voting, I would be hugely supportive of. I'm sure if the government decided it was going to do it, we could find a way of doing it. So often for me, the first step is is people just having the commitment and confidence and courage to try out some new things that they've not done before. Thanks, Conrad. The, uh, it's, um, uh, I used to work on uh, uh, elections and uh, so was one of those uh, civil servants writing um, uh, frustrating uh, replies to uh, people like Helen who are um, championing uh, changes to the democratic process. There are some really difficult security uh, issues uh, yeah. around that, but that's not to say that we shouldn't go for it. Um, uh, Miriam, can you sort of, uh, really interested in, in, in the theme of trust you talked about earlier and trust in terms of local government and all different layers of government. Do people trust local government more than national government? There's, an, there's another um, very interesting survey that also showed that um, people's trust, people, let me try and get the statistics right, 52% of people last year really wanted to affect change in their local area, be involved in change in their local area, and only 25% felt they actually could make a difference. And that, that gap, there's about a 30% gap between the people who want to be involved and do stuff and the people that feel like they actually have the power to do it. That's a problem. That's a massive problem. So I think people really do want to get involved locally because kind of your local government makes decisions that are much closer to your everyday life, the national governments, which, to be fair, during the pandemic, feels very close to like in our homes all the time. But usually in a, under normal circumstances, we're very distant and removed from central government, whereas your local government, you tend to know who your local government is. You know, not everybody does, but, you know, you can find your local councillor and actually have a word with them in a way that your your um, MP might be a little bit more remote. Um, it does come down to trust. And I think one of the things that's worth um, talking about is the fact that one of the big success stories of the pandemic was the hyperlocal response. It was the street by street, neighbour to neighbour, kind of mutual aid groups setting up where neighbours really looked after each other. And they set up road groups and they set up mutual aid groups and they really worked to make sure that nobody was going without food, wasn't able to access their medicines. And that was in, that was incredible. That response, that neighbour to neighbour response was really fast. It was way faster than local government could act, it was way faster than way, way faster than national government could act. And where we've seen real success stories is when local governments have gone, okay, we've got to work with that. We're going to work with the grain of our people who are sorting this out. They're amazing. They've, they've done all these incredible um, acts of generosity and they've supported their neighbours. And we've got a really strong civil society infrastructure. We've got community groups who are working hand in glove with their kind of local environment. They know who the people are that need the support and help. Where local government has gone, brilliant. Yes, we're going to work with you. Thank you. That's amazing. We'll work with you. We'll draw on your networks and we'll support you to be able to do your job really well. Then it works brilliantly. 
And there are other local authorities who haven't done that quite so well, so effectively, and haven't worked with the local community groups who are really responding fantastically, and are trying to do something over the top, a layer of bureaucracy over the top, and coming in with their own systems and their own ways of doing things. That isn't as effective. Going with the local grain, going with the local knowledge, going with the local expertise is the way that things are going to work really effectively. So again, it comes down to trust. Do you trust your local community group? Do you trust your local community to be able to do this? And when you can get out of the way and get kind of barriers out of the way so they can do that really effectively and also support them to do it really well, that's when you're going to have success. It's interesting. Central and local government as an enabler of um, uh, that, that, that sort of direct uh, activity. Um, uh, Helen, Labour Party, Labour Party in, in, in power in uh, parts of local government, uh, uh, mayors, uh, as well as uh, uh, local authorities. Um, what, what's the what's the opportunity for, for the Labour Party to, to take some of the, the things that we're talking about forward? So I think, I mean, certainly what I've seen at a local level, my constituency covers parts of two Labour run boroughs, Lambeth and Southwark, um, is local government being in many ways um, amongst the unsung heroes of, of the pandemic. Um, both of my councils mobilised very quickly to distribute emergency support to residents and also to, to distribute money to businesses. And I've spoken to lots of businesses who were you know, just so relieved and grateful that that happened as quickly as it did when they weren't maybe expecting government to be able to, to, to mobilise so quickly. Um, but both of those councils have also experienced 10 years during which they've lost more than half of the money they get from central government and uh, I think this is also then part of the issue of trust that we've we've spoken about earlier that we need um, national government to be straightforward about what the expectations of local government are but local government must then be properly resourced to deliver against those expectations and, and what we've seen over the last 10 years is government piling more and more pressure onto councils to deliver being very quick to blame them when they can't do that, but there's no accountability for the impact that central government cuts have had on local authority capacity to deliver and also to innovate. Because, you know, if you're in an organisation where you have um, cuts to your funding bearing down on your ability to deliver even your basic statutory responsibilities, there is no space to think um, more widely about how you can harness technology to deliver better or how you can innovate um, with, um, with, with, with your services. Um, many councils have been doing that despite those pressures, but, but we have to, you know, that contract between central government and local government, I think, needs to be reset. I think we also have a situation, so thinking about my former profession of town planning, where the ability of local government to deliver what communities need at a local level is hampered because the cards are already stacked against it by central government. So a really good example in relation to planning is the central government set definition of affordable housing, um, which means certainly means in an area like mine, it is very, very difficult for our councils to deliver the scale of genuinely affordable social housing, where affordable relates to what people actually earn and can afford to pay, rather than to a spurious central government definition of, of market, a relationship to market rent. Um, because, because central government has made that decision and taken that power away from our local councils. So I, I think, I mean, I think central government is, local government is absolutely critical to the rebuilding of trust in government more widely, not least because it can work at the kind of very, very micro scale. Local government has the ability to sort people's problems out in a very, very immediate and direct way. I mean, you can sort what happens to the bins outside your house. I mean, that 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 kind of small and, and, and direct. And if people see government delivering for it at that for them at that local level, that they're much more likely to open up to a much wider conversation about Brexit, about the UK's place in the world, about um, the um, you know long term funding for social care. Um, if local government fails in those small interactions and the things that really matter in people's day-to-day -day lives, it, it, it places a barrier to those big conversations because people will quite rightly say, well, you couldn't deliver for this thing that mattered to me. Why should I listen to you when you come to talk to me about a thing that's much more remote from my day-to-day -day life? Yeah, I was I was struck by what uh, Miriam said uh, earlier about people sort of knowing local government better. I mean, people have far more interactions with local government and sort of so know the service provision better, but 
the accountability isn't necessarily there, the the the, the knowledge and the sort of direct um, relationship with those uh, structures, partly because we we get so focused on national uh, government. Uh, others do come in if you want to chip in on that. I'm I'm also interested in um, uh, communications. I mean, Conrad reminded us right at the start about the number of people who watched the Prime Minister's um, uh, sort of original broadcasts um, uh, bringing in the lockdown. We had that sort of long phase of um, communication by daily press conference that had all sorts of um, uh, strange uh, effects at, at, at times in terms of driving the the agenda. What's the what's the best way to to communicate to, to engender trust as well as that Helen was just talking about there in terms of uh, sort of uh, uh, walking the walking the talk and uh, demonstrating things are actually changing. Uh, how, how does government communication need to need to change to, to sustain a, a, a new relationship with with citizens? Anybody or I'll pick on someone. I mean, Alex, I'll, I'll start with a, a sort of fairly high level comment. Uh, the, the thing, the trend I've seen over over a number of years is this bias towards an announceables and government just being more and more interested in making big announcements. And, you know, Helen was talking about, you know, delivering at a local level. I'd love to see delivery at every level. Uh, I couldn't agree more. It needs to be at a local level. But I, I do sense that there is a, an increasing trend towards wanting to make the big announcements rather than doing the practicality of delivering government. You know, the, the Japanese, the recent Japanese international trade that's just been agreed for me is a great example of government doing what we want it to do, you know, establishing trade agreements with important other countries. Uh, there is less of that practical just getting on doing uh, that. And I think we need more of that and a bit less of the bold announceables that, that then, you know, people are very sceptical of. So I'd start there with just focusing a lot more on practical delivery and a bit less about the announceables. Miriam, is that something people are receptive to? I think they are, but I think for me, <clears throat> I'd rather think about the style with which we communicate. So for me, I don't trust bombastic announcements and promises. I really don't. I, I would much rather have an honest assessment of what's actually happening because then you feel like, actually, I'm, I can trust this person. It is. It comes back to trust. It comes back to a two-way conversation and a two-way sense of trust in the person that's speaking to us. So actually, for me, it's about being honest. And also it's about being able to go, you know what, we might have got that wrong. We might have got it wrong, but we've learned from that. And now we're going to do it differently. And I've yet to see a prime minister who's going to be able to really do that. But I think it would make give me more faith in politicians and um, their words if you actually think oh, that's that's fair, that's honest, and it's a fair. Um, it, it's a. It's the way we would all want to communicate with each other, right? With with honesty, prepared to admit you when you're wrong, and also really fundamentally being based on evidence. If we trust our scientists, we trust the experts, we've got to kind of use those as the kind of linchpin to hold all of this stuff together. Because I wouldn't expect any particular politician to, to be able to know the evidence, know the science, but actually you've got experts. Brilliant. Use them, make them part of the conversation, make them, don't blame them when it goes wrong, but actually take your decisions based on that evidence and communicate it honestly and be prepared to go, you know what, we might have got that wrong, we're going to do it differently next time. Thanks. Arik, uh, is, is government using the tools it's got at its disposal? It's got a, a national platform, it's got all sorts of um, other means of communicating with people. They sent out a, a letter early on in the um, uh, pandemic reminding people of their um, uh, obligations. Is, is government using that well enough? What, what can it do to, to use the variety of tools it has better? Yeah, it's difficult. I think on the tools itself, it seems to be you know, this is just my opinion, obviously I'm no communications expert, um, it seems to be using everything at its disposal. I mean, it's going even on like, um, you know, multi-language TV channels, putting out adverts on coronavirus, that sort of thing. The letters I think are, are quite important. Um, you know, I've been getting, I remember getting texts about lockdown quite early on, which is quite impressive. Uh, I think, yeah, like, like Miriam was saying, I think a lot of the challenges around um the kind of just general vision behind what the the plan is right and treating us like like adults and, and being a bit clearer in that respect so i think it seems like ages ago now but it seems like at, at the beginning there's a lot of like 
uh, war rhetoric and it was a bit too like um, I don't know just unrealistic and since then I think there's just been a lack of confidence really in the communications you know eat out to help out reopen the economy and then you know now we're a bit of a shaky stage again I think the tools really are are fine um, obviously I think there, there can be misuse of social media channels going back to the December election but I hope that people aren't getting their information from the internet. I think maybe there's a problem actually around coronavirus misinformation, you know, anti-mask protests, which seems to be kicking off quite a lot. Uh, again, you know, this is an ongoing problem. We haven't really solved uh, how we combat misinformation online. You know, the anti-vax issue was already a problem before coronavirus. It's likely accelerated heavily. Actually, I, I still get messages from uh, Facebook friends about, you know, coronavirus conspiracy videos. Uh, you know, my dad sent me, I used my dad as a case study for how an ordinary person uh, interacts with the world, right? Um, and he sent me a video of a, uh, I think it was a Bengali TV news channel talking about how coronavirus was a, a bioweapon from the US, right? It was a news channel, viral video going on around WhatsApp. I think those sorts of things haven't really been combated yet. And I think we've been maybe way too um, relaxed about combating that kind of information. But like I said, I don't know where exactly people are getting that information from. I hope it's not purely from uh, the internet. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Rui. Just in, in the last um, couple of minutes then, I'm going to ask uh, each of you to, so we, 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 we've talked quite a lot about what's going on uh, now. Let, let's sort of throw our minds forward and say, what's going what's to sustain out of this crisis in five, 10 years time? What, what will we, we look back and say, well, actually that was the, that was the, 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 the pandemic was the, the hinge point for, change what, what what are the um uh what are the really sustained changes that we think are going to come out of this um helen what do you think so i i hope that it will be a reflection coming out of the experience of every single person living in the uk at the moment about what we need to be there for us when an unexpected challenge hits it, it is it, it is it comes back to this point about resilience and about how um, we create a society that at, at the level, whether we're talking about the level of the household or the neighbourhood or local authority area or the country as a whole, has the resilience within our systems, our public services, our communities, our economy to withstand um, unexpected knocks of the kind and the scale that we've had. Um, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the unavoidable reflection on this pandemic is that we weren't ready for it. We weren't ready for it in terms of civil contingencies. We weren't ready for it in terms of the funding and the resourcing of our public services. And we weren't ready for it in terms of the financial resilience of local of individual households because so many people had been left so vulnerable as a consequence of the government we'd, we've had over the last 10 years. So I hope that, that that this shared experience of living through such a terrible time um, will give us a, a set of insights into how we need our society to be so that all of us have the resilience that we need to withstand any future challenges of, of this kind or, or, of, or of any different type that we might be able to imagine. Thanks, Helen. Conrad? For me, it's just been the numerous examples where government can do things differently. Uh, and I think we really need to cherish and learn from that, be it new technologies, be it new engagement with suppliers, be it new uses of communications. Uh, it's proven time and time again that we can do things far better. And it's not about a massive use of new different things. It's just about applying the things that we have access to today in different ways. So I just hope that we learn from the fact that a numerous things that we've delivered during COVID shows that with the right imperative, we can deliver way better services at far lower cost. That's good. Um, Ari? Yeah, I, I agree with both uh, Conrad and Helen. I think the pandemic has shown what is possible. Um, it's kind of breathed new life into um, technology uh, at a time where I think most people were quite sceptical. But also, as, as um, Helen said, I think the thing that's really highlighted for me is the complete lack of pandemic planning that seems to have been in place. I think what should come out of this is 
a quite comprehensive plan for any future pandemic, which also covers things like education, things like elections, things like um, you know public services, and not just the health system. Uh, you know, admittedly, I think the government actually did quite well in avoiding things like the ventilation issue, um, those sorts of problems. But everything else seems to be on the hoof planning, which isn't. You would think in future pandemics we would have a plan for for everything really. Thanks, Avi. And uh, we've just tipped past ten thirty, so Miriam. 10 seconds, 15 seconds. I think what I'd like to see come out of this is an increased investment in civil society infrastructure, um, because we know where the response has been incredibly successful. It needs a strong civil society base in order to make that happen. So a real recognition of that and an investment in that would be fantastic. And actually, I think coming back to the original question, which is involve people in decision making really bring in the different voices, the different experiences, the different ideas that come within this population that we have and enable all of us to be part of solving the problems as we go ahead. Brilliant. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you to uh, all of the panel for um, your contributions. Uh, it's a fascinating discussion. Uh, and uh, for me, the things that came out of that trust, um, realism, uh, focus on delivery and uh, inclusiveness and, and diversity uh, there. And those are uh, those are um, points that we can keep in our minds as we as we go forward. Um, uh, thanks again to the panel. Thank you to you for all of your uh, questions. Um, uh, uh, some uh, great uh, thoughts there uh, as well. And thank you again to PA Consulting for supporting this event. Um, join us at half past 12 for the next uh, panel event, which is Tech for All, Tech for Good. How can government ensure digital transformation that works for everyone? So we hope to see you then. Thank you all for watching.